Do you ever see this film? If you have not, and you have any desire to, I recommend you go do so before you watch this video. I also recommend that you watch this film in general. It's a good film. I actually saw it last November, my perspective. So last, last November from your perspective. With my mom. who's still in the theaters. I actually did a little math. It was the fifth to last film I saw in theaters as of now. Since, you know, the theaters are all closed down because of COVID. I know I date myself with these comments, and that's okay. I don't mind. I, I, it's a part of public record that I do these way in advance as part of my job and trying to stay on top of things. It will be interesting to see if theaters are open or if anything's going better or worse a year from now. A lot of things can happen in a year. This is a hell of a cast they put together for this one. Only a few characters I really want to point out. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is one of the more obvious ones. But Anna... Da Anna de Armas. Armas, excuse me. Anna de Armas. I can't read my own handwriting. She was the interesting one. She she holds a lot of the narrative on her on the weight of her shoulders. It's her and, of course, Daniel Craig, who are the big ones. But what's interesting is I was like, God, I don't think I've seen her in anything else. Actually, I have. Blade Runner 2049. That's it, though. She has apparently been doing quite well for herself, and a good thing, too. She's a good actress, so credit to her. This film also follows almost all of Ronald Knox's Ten Commandments, which I debated, but I don't think I'm actually going to explain to you guys. If you really care, you can look it up, but it doesn't matter. It's just interesting that for a film that is supposed to be subversive with regards to how these kind of things work in per Ryan Johnson's overall approach, he nevertheless follows almost all of the rules. It is worth noting that those rules are pretty out of date at this point. Anyways. <clears throat> oh, yeah, by the way, the rule uh, that they violate is Rule 8. They don't actually show us the toxology report. Anywho, at least not until later. So, set design. First of all, I want to give absolutely huge props to the uh, props departments. It has to be plural. There's no way one group of people got this house set together. This is nuts. I am very impressed with it and terrified. I would hate to stay in there, never mind live in there. Like, I like big houses, but that's because I like space. I also have an appreciation for older uh, architecture, older houses in terms of style and design. This place just looks like a, an extended attic. Like the whole house is just one large attic. No thank you. No thank you. Especially the creaking. I hate the creaking. You ever live in a house that is creaking? It, it just God, it drives me batty, especially if there's other people there. And so you just want to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And sometimes you convince yourself not to because you don't want to wake anybody up. And someone else goes and that wakes you. So you're like, fine, since it's already okay, I'll do it. Uh, this is probably just me. Moving on. <clears throat> so. Uh, I'm not going to go step by step through this film. Rather, since this is the second time I've watched this film, I was actually able to watch for a few details and specifics as I went through. This is really well crafted. And I'm going to go and put this up front. While it is violating my own rules to talk about episode 7, 8, or 9, not because they are good or bad, and not because I like them or dislike them, but only because simply bringing them up tends to bring in the crowd, regardless, I do have to say this one thing, because I do think it's relevant to this film.
I think Ryan Johnson does a lot better when he's given his own work to work with. He did write this in addition to direct it and was producing it as well. And he was involved at several steps in the creation process, as a good director will do. And this is good. Like, I actually really like this film. And I think it is legitimately very well constructed. And it wasn't someone else's work. I know I'm not the only person to mention that, but I do have to mention it because I think it's relevant. Because I actually know people, personally, who have refused to see this film because it had his name on it. And I don't blame them, but I wanted to put that out there. I mean, even some of the best writers uh, and creators generally have done at least one terrible thing, right? I mean, I, I could speak to that. and I, I've probably done a few decent things in my time, but all I need to do to look at my own dreck is look at anything from about six years ago and onwards. And, and, and before, I mean, before six years ago. Older, there we go, that's a good word for that. So, Marta's reaction, she's really, really having trouble dealing with this. Um, Linda, that would be Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis? Yeah, yeah, her, her, her character. She's probably the overall best character here, other than the main two. And that's, oh, that's saying something. Um, <laughs> she comes in, gives a big hug, oh, hey. I, I, we wanted you at the funeral, but I was outvoted. <sighs> the early construction of the film is very simple. We have, uh, it's very simple, but very bloody well done. I don't know what the proper term is for this, but it's one conversation across multiple scenes. Now, to explain that a little bit, sometimes films will do that and it actually makes no damn sense. Like when someone says something and then there's a jump cut and then it's like 40 minutes later and they're continuing the conversation they just had. Which is nonsense. What were they talking about in the 40 minutes in between? Now that we've said that, you want to talk about pinball? Oh, I love pinball. Pinball, 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 pinball. Oh, you know what? It's been 40 minutes. Let's go back to the conversation we were just talking about. Good idea. And then continue. No, it doesn't make sense. What I mean by that, though, here is we have multiple interviews, which are happening at different times, obviously, and they're splicing them in and out of each other so that one interview of four people makes one sentence, effectively. And we also... So that's the first thing they do. Fairly classic thing to do, but very well executed. The second thing they do is they show the lies and the truth at the same time. They have the interviewer, the interviewee, excuse me, who says, Oh, yeah, no, I, I love bottled water. It's my favorite. And then it cuts to the flashback where they're like, I hate bottled water. I would give anything to never have to drink this drink again. Cut back to the interviewee. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's good. It's good. Mm-hmm. Mm. They're all terrible liars, of course. But I suppose most people are, aren't they? <clears throat> so, we also have frequent usage of uh, blatant, blatant point-making, I'm just going to call it. But it's it's exposition. It is a form of exposition. What we garner from this initial section is two big points. Number one, this family's horrible. <laughs> just just horrible. You ever? I, I suppose you ever is a is a bad way to start that sentence. Do you have a family like this? I imagine most people do to some extent or another. That's probably why the cliche of "oh Thanksgiving dinner" said in the manner that I just said is a thing, right? 
Oh, God, we have to all get around and discuss things, right? And then politics can come up. And we all have our grudges, and we all have the bad blood. And we all put on a smile on our face in, in public, because we're supposed to. And we don't tell anybody else about it, but... Right? Even I have that amongst my blood family. But not all of it. Actually, I would say there's actually several members of my blood family that are part of my real family. So that's awesome, too. And I, I'm not even joking about that. I consider myself blessed. That, that's a legitimately awesome thing. I hope a lot of you could say a similar thing. The theme of ch family being chosen is a big thing in this one, too, since Marta obviously is not a blood relative. But then again, neither is Joni, to be completely blunt. So we've got Joni who married in, and we've got Marta who is just a part of the family by virtue of being a kind and caring soul. I think Frank Oz's character said that best. Oh, your honor, she won him over by being kind and considerate and helpful. Yeah, no, that's not going to fly. Anyways. <laughs> so, the other point is that they're all leeches. I've actually admitted this before, on camera. And I know, I've know, I know this because I've had people comment on this, too, so I remember that I've mentioned this. Uh, my family is actually pretty well off financially. I've lived in a ditch. Now, I put those two facts side by side to mention that while my family has been there for me several times, and I in no way want to disparage them, my blood family, I should, I should keep clarifying, uh, my blood family who are wealthy, they pretty much adamantly did not want the situation that happened in this movie to happen with their children and their grandchildren. So, no, I didn't get any financial support from them, and no, I didn't get bailed out by them. I have been supported by the especially wealthy part of, par parts of my family once in my life. Now, I'm thankful for that, but it's interesting to see that since it is, I, I kind of get the point. The fear, the threat there, is that if you're not willing to stand on your own two feet and to make it work, well, then you might just turn into a leech, just like everyone in this film is. Oh, not everyone. I mean, all the Thormsbys are, right? Of course, you could also take the flip side on that one, and that if you support someone not at all, that's just going to lead to issues, especially if they're already in college. But let's not go into that. Point being, this is all established very quickly, very efficiently. We also get a lot of little details. I really wish I could have... I could have discussed every single one. I'm not going to, because after about the 15th, I stopped. But one of the nice bits early on is as they're still having the interviews, uh, Joni is like, oh yeah, I read your tweet about you. Cut to Linda. Yes, I read the article about you. The tweet was about the article, by the way. And in that one flash, we do see a quick showcasing of the variance in mentality. Linda is still as messed up as the others, but she is probably the most driven, and she is definitely the one who is the smartest of the group. There's this wonderful bit where Linda's like, if you think you're going to catch me talking bad about this or that in front of a detective and a state trooper, then you cut to Richard. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you everything, because I'm an idiot and I don't know anything. Why did she marry this guy? He is probably the second worst. Mm, let me take that back. I'd say he is the third worst of the Thormsbees that we see. Although, God, we're talking about, like, gradients of horrible amongst a, a morass of blech. 
So by all means, I'd love to hear your personal favorite worst Thormsby, but Richard's down there for me. Obviously cheating on his wife, whom he is leeching off of, in addition to just leeching in general, is not exactly endearing him to me. He, and he's such a bad liar. We also find out Joni's stealing a hundred grand a year. A hundred thousand dollars a year. Now, I'm well off. You know, I, I thanks to you guys, you all are awesome, by the way, thanks to you guys, I have food on my table, literally. It's actually, it's just some vegetables. But I mean, I, I've got food on my table. I've got water. I've got a bed. I know I've got my own, my own one-bedroom apartment. I can pay the bills, right? And still have enough money to spend and blow on my knees to spoil their rotten. Cool. That's awesome. I don't even make half of that, the $100,000 that she is embezzling a year. What is she spending that on? That just, wow! Okay, I just, I want you to cognate that for a second. Think about how much you make in a year, and then do a little simple math, and then realize how nutso that is. I know these people are all supposed to be... Uh, oh, God, there's actually a specific term for that. It's not uh, Novu Rich. Novu, Novu Rich? That's different. That's a separate thing. But these are people who are... I guess we could call them trust fund babies. Hmm. Either way, they're certainly well off, but damn. Anyways, the baseball... Hey, he takes the baseball because there's nothing in the letter, so he throws the baseball out the window. Remember that for me. Anywho, so then we find... Uh, this is when Marta is properly introduced, and we find out that she has two big factoids about her immediately. She has a kind heart, and she is a good nurse. Oh, yeah, she also vomits on when she lies. That's probably the worst written aspect of the whole film. It's called a rule. You establish a rule so that you have a bedrock by which you can now establish other things. You know, um, a lot of fiction does this, and of course now I'm struggling to come up with an example, but, you know, if, if a, a superpower or a religious work or something that's in fantasy or sci-fi, you know, you can't warp in, in gravity, so if they warped, you know, if they say they warped in gravity, then they're lying, you know. That kind of establishment, you do that, so now there's a rule which the audience now understands and utilizes, and we do see this demonstrated right up, off the bat, so we now know she cannot tell a lie except under very specific circumstances, of which we see two over the course of this film. So, that's fun. And cute. That all then leads to uh, <laughs> a nice little tidbit. The trooper guy, I can't remember his name, he's he's in almost every Ryan Johnson film. He says this thing, okay, it can't be Ransom because he wasn't even there, and it can't be Marta because she has nothing to gain from it. And he starts cutting off other people, but those are the first two people he ejects from any possibility of guilt. Huh. So, they've been doing these interviews, right? What then happens is... Blanc, there we go, Blanc the detective, who has a really unusual southern accent. Uh, he picks up Kentucky accent, I believe. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. Picks up the coin and flips it. Coin frozes in the air. And then we have, I think it's something like 20 minutes? It's a long flashback. And then the coin comes back. This is quietly brilliant. When you're making any kind of visual media for storytelling, you have to include cues and clues 
Well, you don't have to. Obviously, if you want to screw with the the audience, you can. But if you want the audience to figure out what's going on, you include clues. Include clues. That's a weird phrase for some reason. So that they have an idea of what's going on. In short, the earlier flashbacks had no such thing. They were just chopped all willy-nilly all over the place. But we also understood that those were just flashbacks between them and that they were happening and they were thinking on them during the interview. In order to show the variance here, in order to show that this is one extended flashback, there needed to be something to show it began and ended, hence the coin. Quietly brilliant. Good film take, good filmmaking, strangely enough. So the coin flip happens. We find out that Marta doesn't play Go to win. Huh. Anywho, so this leads to the first twist. It was an accidental killing. I told you I saw this with my mom, right? I've probably also mentioned many times on this show that half my family, including my mom, comes from a medical background. She guessed within minutes that she didn't kill him. Because he showed absolutely no reaction whatsoever to being given 100 milligrams of morphine. That will hit your system so hard and so fast, you'll be showing symptoms within one minute. And yet he is completely lucid and fine as if nothing had changed, because of course he was. He, nothing had changed. He hadn't actually had the overdose. Now, i got to be honest, when I first saw this, I thought that was just a mistake, because I'm a cynic, and I have studied fiction for most of my life, so I just assumed it was a screw-up. No. No, that's actually foreshadowing. In fact, just to really hammer the point in, to, to prove that this is intentional, at one point he flat out says, I only have six minutes left, showing that four minutes have passed. Earlier in the very same scene, she flat out says, at the four minute mark, you will have these symptoms, of which he is exhibiting none. So on the off chance that you think this is just speculation or the kind of thing where you have to hold up a clock to the film, the film does both for you. Nice touch. So, this leads to her answering the question and you know, throwing up and then dealing with everything. And he's like, alright, I want you to be my Watson. And Okay, let's go. This then leads to... what I would call the most talked about scene in this film. It's the party. And... It, we actually saw very brief flashbacks to the same scene earlier, but now we get to see the party in its entirety, where they're talking politics. Remember I mentioned the Thanksgiving dinner thing earlier? And everyone's all just a little sloshed and more willing to be open about their particular opinions and views than they otherwise would be, and... I gotta lay this one out, because this is both brilliant and so messed up. Marta is a trained nurse. She is good at what she does. She makes enough money to support two other people by herself. So, I mean, nurses are not exactly swimming in money, but my point is, this is someone who is a very high-skilled professional. Someone who, to be perfectly blunt, is probably a higher-skilled worker than everyone else in that entire house, with the possible exception of Harlan himself. Okay? We've established that. That's very important. Because what happens is as they're discussing this and they try to drag her in, because she did it, her family did it the right way. They came in the right way. They actually followed the law and went through the system. And, I, gee, God, I don't even want to talk about the mess that is the refugee 
and the influx thing. That's not even just a United States problem, by the way. That is a problem in so many different countries. Can we just shelve that for just a second? Because that is a huge topic. So they're talking about that whole thing. And he, without even hesitating, he just, he's got this tray of just snacks, and he just kind of holds it up with that classic expectant thing, like you're supposed to be taking this. And he holds it for just a few seconds for him to get kind of wave it around like, hello, why hasn't someone taken this from me yet? And he does this to Marta, a trained nurse who is a skilled professional worker. I really wanted to hammer that point in because it's probably the most subtle point in the entire film. And it is right there on its face. Wow! Wow, Richard! <laughs> oh, yeah. <clears throat> so. Hug. We'd all like to take care of you, you know, financially. You've, you've been part of the, the thing. And hug, it's okay, hug it out. By the way, I wanted you at the funeral, but I was outvoted. I actually lost track. I think it's four times throughout the film someone says, we wanted you at the funeral, but we were outvoted. Right. At one hour, God, we're way, this film takes its time, but it's okay. Good pacing. Um, I've said so many times, it's, I've actually said this a lot this year, in fact, for all the videos I've been doing. It's not the length, it's what you do with it. Go ahead, get, get the joke out of your system. It's all right. I may delete half of them. Point being, that if, <laughs> this, this has actually come up mostly with regards to game design. What you do with the length of a game is substantially more important than the length of a game. And that can also alter perception. Um, I'm covering Enterprise this year. One of the things, I, I think that's actually later than when this video goes out even. Now, like, I've already recorded all the Enterprise stuff from my perspective. Because I usually do Star Trek stuff, then the movie stuff. But anyways, point being, there are several episodes of Enterprise which just feel like they're dragging and dragging and dragging. And then there's some episodes which are just... And then it's over, and I, I can barely believe it's already been 44 minutes. They're the same length. Down to the minute, they're the same length. But that perception is altered because of how well they utilize that time. And that's what I wanted to say about this film. I barely noticed that the two hours were, were just flying by as I was going through it, because it's a well-paced film that has good density. They use the time excellently. So one hour, we're one hour into this film, halfway through it, one hour and 15 seconds in, Chris Evans shows up. Now, as soon as I saw that, basically, I, I leaned over to Mom and said, he's the one who did it. And she asked me later how I knew that. <laughs> uh, I did warn you about spoilers, so this is your, your last chance, but obviously I've already spoiled. Yeah, yeah, Chris Evans' character, uh, Ransom, he's the guy, he's who did it. The way I guessed this was because of the fact that they had Chris Evans in their movie and he didn't show up for an hour. No, that's it. That was the reasoning and logic. That is exactly the type of thing I would do. In fact, I've seen that done before, and I will be covering a film later this year that uses the same tactic. Alien. The original Alien. It's specifically casting people with an insight that when people watch the film, they will assume things based on the, uh, the price, the relative stardom of the actors that you've put in your work. So having someone like Chris Evans, who... This is pretty much at the height of the MCU and the wake of Endgame and everything. 
I say at the height of the MCU. Obviously, this is at the end of the MCU, but you get my point. You know, he is a gargantuan box office star at this point, and he doesn't even show up except for a couple of very brief cameos for an hour of the film. No, no, no. He did it. <laughs> Flimsy, I suppose. But, you know. Anyways. So he is openly hostile. He's actually probably the most openly hostile, hostile of the group. Which is interesting, because they're all hostile. Every single one of them. Even Meg gets a little bit... And she's probably the nice one, maybe, kind of. Probably not. I mean, Linda flat out accuses Marta of actually having sex with her father in order to garner favors and finances, so... Yeah, no, they're all, they are all hostile people, and they are all unpleasant people, but he is nice and overt about it. That's another thing the film does that's kind of clever, and maybe I think he did it. Because the film play, portrays him in a positive light. Now, I put those in quotes for those of you listening to the MP3, because there's, relative, there's relativity on display here. In other words, while he is still a horrible person, he is less horrible than them. Why? Because he is honest. Someone who walks up and says, I'm going to punch you, is generally perceived to be a better, quote-unquote, person than someone who walks up and says, hey, friend, how you doing, and then quietly stabs you in the back. And guess what the rest of the Thormsbees do? All of them. Even Meg. So, <clears throat> there's this wonderful scene where uh, Ransom admits, yeah, no. No, I, he cut me out of the will. You're right. I heard. Why are you even here? And they're all faux-supportive. Oh, this, this could be the best thing that ever happened to you. I think this is a good move. Maybe you'll finally grow up a little. So. Um. <laughs> so they're all comforting. They're all pseudo-nice. Then they find out that the inheritance, which includes the house, the company, and roughly $60 million of total assets, are all going to Marta. Guess what reactions they have? Naturally, he finds the whole thing hysterical. So, they all turn on Marta. And I mean hard. They, I'm, I'm surprised they don't outright attack her earlier uh, Walt and Richard actually came to blows in front of a police officer. Very smart. So they 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 just descend upon her. Every single one of them, all of them, accuses her of something. I mentioned the aforementioned. Are you having? Are you boinking my father? As I believe exactly what she said. But all of them descend upon her. All of them can't handle the idea of being cut out of the inheritance. Huh. And then Ransom offers to help. Well, he, he offers an escape route, which is unnecessary and also one of the other weak parts of the film because there's absolutely no reason why Marta's car wasn't able to work and why Ransom was then able to wiggle his way into her life. But let's, let's move past all that for a second. Ransom, we've, we've got two flaws in the film. I I'm, I'm just want to point them out because this is a great film, but it's not like I'm saying Ryan Johnson's an amazing writer. I mean, <clears throat> so don't torch me alive, please. At least kill me first. God, please kill me. So he, he helps her get away. But as he's leaving, I think I think this could be the best thing to happen to all of you. Wah, wah. So he takes her to dinner and offers her food. He's all comforting and helpful and manipulative as crap. This is one of the other things I like about this. 
This shows early on that he is a manipulative bastard, even when he is seemingly being helpful. Because he lines up the situation and flat out says, all right, you're going to tell me exactly what happened. So, she does. Meanwhile, cuts to the others who are debating with Frank Oz. By the way, I love Frank Oz, but I've, I don't think I've ever really just heard his standard speaking voice before. If I just closed my eyes, I couldn't tell it was him. I could identify him, because it's him, vis visually, but I don't think I could tell just by listening. Anyways, so, they start talking about the Slayer rule, uh-huh, and he, she just needs to renounce the inheritance. That's, that's how that needs to go. It's the right thing to do for us to get our money, leech, leech, leech. Meanwhile, Ransom is just sitting there. Huh. And he is, as we find out later, processing because his whole plan has just gone up in smoke. So now he's trying to uh, improv a little bit. This is also a good time to mention just a very, very small but good uh, storytelling technique. Increase the number of bottles or glasses on a table at a dinner scene to show the passage of time. I just wanted to point it out because it's... I love little filmmaking techniques like this. Because you do a scene like that, and it was probably shot within minutes of the previous scene. But it's supposed to be like four or five hours later or whatever. So we have to show the time passage, so here we go. Just cool stuff. I just wanted to comment on it. Anyways, I, I thought about doing a gimmick here. Like I got my water bottle. And then having like another one around. But the problem is, all you see is my green screen, and I can't really do much with that on purpose. My show is minimalistic by design to avoid the YouTube various traps. Thanks, YouTube, for creating an extremely hostile environment for me to try and make a living in. Appreciate it. This then cuts to Meg calling her. <clears throat> no one knows. Whole family's there. You could tell early on. Because she does this thing, and I'll try to demonstrate it, uh, put my eyes over my glasses here. She does this thing, yeah, I'll, I'll just take my glasses off, where she's on the phone, and she does this. And her eyes lock with something. Now, we don't see, you see how I'm, even though I'm moving, I'm still looking at the camera? Her eyes lock with the eyes of whoever she's talking to, or whoever she's acknowledging is there. Speaking as someone who studied human behavior for a long time, people who talk on the phone, their eyes generally don't lock onto things. They roam. Or maybe if they're in the wor if they're working on something, they'll lock on. They'll like watch the monitor or whatever. But otherwise, they just kind of. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. But for her to lock like that, that almost always means something has drawn her attention, which is usually another person's gaze, since people almost always will tell when you're looking at them and look back instinctually. You'll probably notice this. You go out just in public. I know, I know, COVID. But you, know, you go out in the grocery store. If you just look at someone for a few seconds, they will notice, even if it's out of this corner of their eyes, and their gaze will be immediately drawn right to you. It can lead to some awkward moments if you don't know what you're doing, actually. So she's looking at someone. So even before the reveal, we could tell she's not actually alone. Once again, I just like pointing out these little details, for there are so many in this film. I really recommend you see this film if you haven't. If you've gotten this far, I've already spoiled everything, but please go watch the film. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. I'm thinking about buying a copy of it for my mom, actually. Uh, you know, just get her a copy she can read whenever. So, <clears throat> and by read, I mean watch. Meg, you see, we're her actual, we're his actual family. And, you know, it's the right thing to do to make sure that we have the money and you should make sure that we have the stuff. And 
well, smiling, nodding, backstabbing. We also find out that Meg is the one who told them about her mother. Well, ain't that cute. <laughs> so the news shows up. That's actually thanks to the kid. I can't remember his name. The, the Nazi kid. I don't remember. He's probably not actually a Nazi, but he apparently swats people, so I kind of hope he dies. But the news people are sent in. And she decides to sleep out the back. And this is when Michael Shannon show his, shows his chops. Now, I've actually liked Michael Shannon in a couple of films so far. And I do have to admit, he plays a creep really well. It's actually kind of messed up. That's it's not the best thing to put on your uh, resume. But, I mean, he's really good at it. Um, I can't think of the name of the film. There's this one film which is about uh, carriers who go from point A to point B via bicycle. And that's the main protagonist, and he's a cop, a dirty cop who's trying to, you know, get something from one of them and steal it and set himself up. And he, God, he is just such a slimy, conniving creep, that old film. And that's what he plays here as Walt. The scene is once again brilliantly showcased because it makes a point. He's got this cane, and he advances on Marta, not in a sexual way, in a threatening way, like like this wall coming in to crush her. And as he's doing it, he's emphasizing his words with his cane, which I'll, I'll try to make this quiet. You know, he's doing this thing with his cane every single time as he's, as he's emphasizing this point. And he just comes across as horrible. Oh, and by the way, even ignoring his demeanor and presentation, which could be the kind of thing we could assume from Marta simply being overwhelmed by this, what he's saying is he is actively threatening her mother with deportation because, well, creep. So, this then leads us to our action sequence, finally. Uh, we, this is actually the first action sequence of the film. It is actually hysterical watching the car chase of the terrible, awful Honda, I don't even know what, trying to outrun police vehicles. I, there's even there's a particular cut I like where it cuts to them, and it just it's it's the it's the classic cut where the the miles per hour thing goes up to show that the car is speeding up. Then it cuts to her car and it's just sitting there at like fifty something. Just, nope, that's that's as much as it's got. Uh, Meg, uh, they wrap up. She's caught. I, I actually have a comment here. I'm gonna avoid saying out loud. I don't want to break my own rule. But uh, Meg apologizes. Do you think she's legit? Because I don't. I think she's probably one of the better of the Thormsbys. And I do think in a moment of weakness and fear she did something she actually regrets. But I don't think she legitimately is sorry. She just feels like she went a little bit too far. My thoughts. This then leads to him reading the toxology report, taking the back, realizing that the moment he sees that, he puts it all together. So he cuts off her admission, her confession, and sets up the final act. Now, a whodunit has to have a good reveal moment. It has to. That's arguably the point of a whodunit. You could argue you trying to figure it out on your own is part of it, but really, from the filmmaker's perspective, they want that reveal to be satisfying. Allow me to say, without a hyperbole, this is one of the better reveal moments in a whodunit I have ever seen. It's not the best, but it's definitely in the 
top 10 kind of range there, in my opinion. The music usage, the camera usage, Daniel Craig chewing up the scenery, Marta just stumbling through, and of course, the, the wonderful Chris Evans, who actually plays a surprisingly good villain. It's interesting. I mean, it's not the first time. What's, what's doubly funny is this is also not the only film we're covering with Chris Evans this year. And in both films, he plays someone antagonistic. He's really good at that. Although in one of them, he's a psychopath, horror-killing death dude. And the other one, he's actually right, but let's not get into that. <clears throat> Sunshine, by the way. The other film we're covering this year, which has him, is Sunshine, which I'm pretty sure is happening after this one. Anyways... 14 minutes, 14 minutes of the film are dedicated towards the reveal. Now, believe it or not, I have very little to say about this. Um, I do like the fake knife. <laughs> and yes, I caught the foreshadowing. He couldn't tell the difference between a stage knife and a real knife. Cute. But what I also love is the baseball. I mentioned that earlier. Now, it's actually popped up a few times. After Richard originally threw it out the window, it just kind of roamed around, and then he picked it up, then he threw it for the dog, then the dog brought it back, and then she actually picks it up, and then she puts it in, in where it's supposed to go, because she knows where it's supposed to go, and then she knows the letters, then she gets the letters, and then she gets the truth. She followed the path of the rainbow, and the truth was right there, where natural law indicated that it would be. Also, Richard has a black eye. There's a, there's a jump cut, and then Richard has a black eye the next time we see him. He will be very grateful if that is all he receives from this incident. We also see Richard, immediately prior to getting the black eye, uh, trying to bribe a cop with, with cash to not haul his son away. Wow, Richard. And Richard really is a slimeball and a scumbag. And this leads me to one of my next to last points. There are degrees of horrible. I wish I could say with just experience with fiction and history, but unfortunately I have seen this in real life as well. There are bad people, and then there are worse people. There's a big gap between those two, and I don't want to make the bad people seem better, but the fact of the matter is the worst people are called worse for a good reason. The whole Thormsby family's messed up. They're all bad. They are. Every single one of them, even Meg. But um, <clears throat> none of them were willing to go as far as Ransom was, and for as little reason. One of the things I like most about the reveal scene is the tragedy of it. I know, that sounds so horrible, but he was fine. Mum called it correctly. He was not poisoned. He had no symptoms. But just to make sure that everything went right and just to keep the dramatic flair of it all, he slits his own throat. I wonder what was going through his mind as he realized that none of the pain was being dulled, even though he had supposedly taken an overdose of morphine. Slitting your own throat is not a fun way to go. <laughs> so... That's awful. As one of the only decent people in the whole family. This is ultimately a character study. We have Ransom, who is willing to murder his grandfather, not only for money, which, you know, that's an old thing, but, but for a substantially more petty and pathetic reason. Because screw her. 
because in his own words, this is their inheritance, their birthright, their ancestral home. And if you think, I'm going to let you... He lays it all out in his confession. This was all about him refusing to let some outsider from... Oh, let's see. Where was she from? I wrote it down. Ecuador, Paraguay, Uruguay, or Brazil. Take your pick, because every single one of them says a different one. I mentioned the uh, <clears throat> casual casual racism by Richard. All of them mistake where she's from. And none of them actually know the truth. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if she's from none of those places. I don't recall if they ever clarify. <laughs> so, how dare some outsider from... She doesn't... He, he, nobody actually knows where. He's the one who says Brazil. Try to take that from them. And what's really great is he's... As he's like, this is our ancestral home. It is Blanc who actually points out the obvious stupidity of that. Dude, your, your grandfather bought this place in the 80s from a Pakistani millionaire. <laughs> That's not... This is not your ancestral anything. Okay? You don't have claim to Jack. But that automatic presumption, that truly inherent, this is what I should have thing, is the exact same thing the rest of the family has. Really, it's the right thing, and we should get this, and I should get the company, and I should get the money, and I should get the house. That is how all of them act. She should keep living her high lifestyle, she should keep going to college, he should keep being able to go to school, he should keep being in charge of the company, start making more money. Etc., etc., etc. He should keep being able to cheat on his wife while still living the high life. And so forth and so on. Sorry, I keep repeating myself. Because I really want to hammer this point in. They all have the same mentality, but that's the gap between bad and worse. Because none of them are murderers. None of them were willing to kill their own family member just out of that sense of petty spite. Contrast this. Marta. Marta, and I think this is the best way I could really demonstrate her character in one sentence, endangers herself and her family, both in terms of livelihood and future, in order to save the life of an innocent whom she, at the, that moment in time, thinks is trying to blackmail her. That is Marta. And that is the contrast. This is, as I said earlier, ultimately a character study between the contrast of Marta and Ransom and how different it is to have someone who's playing Go to win and someone who's playing Go because they just enjoy the game. I like this film a lot, if it's not obvious. I do have one final question for you. What do you think she did? Obviously the film doesn't show us because screw you. But what do you think she did? Obvious symbolism is obvious, as she's in the house and they are not. And it's all codified now. This is her house. My house, my coffee, my rules. I'm not going to give my own thoughts on the matter. Actually, it was the first thing I asked Mom and Third. He went to see the film with us uh, right after the film stopped. So what do you think she did? We had a bit of a debate about it. I'm curious of your guys' thoughts. I hope you've enjoyed mine. I'll see you next time.